Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable, the mystical, the magical, the macabre. Oh, get on with it. Things we know and things we don't and things we think we know. New England's own Van Helsink. And with me is that rude Englishman himself, Mr. Steve Parsons. That was the longest introduction we've had in many... Yeah, exactly right. That one went on for too long. Yeah, well, tough. it's my show. Get over it. No, you don't need a co-host. No, not at all. I could get I could get my dog to bark a few things now and then. And there you go. I, Macy's a cat. Oh, is she? When did that happen? <laughs> Anyways, we have a guest tonight, and you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International right here on Tojanet and Pararex, if Ben put it up, uh, or Roy, or whoever it is. Uh, anyway, so uh, we have a, a guest today, and it's uh, not about ghosts. In fact, I said... He said, uh, I don't know too much about ghosts. Well, you don't have to, because we explore all things that are mysterious and strange and odd. Because Steve and I are probably the most mysterious, odd things out there. Anyways, without further ado, let me introduce to you Mr. Derek Gunn. Hey, Ron. Hey, Steve. Nice to be with you guys today. Hey, I hope we haven't left you at the middle of an intersection. Why have I gone quiet? Yeah, <laughs> that's what you get when you speak, Steve. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Derek is the, the uh, I guess, the owner of uh, the website Amazing Massachusetts. And if you haven't seen it, go check it out because it's got a lot of cool stuff on it. And uh, Steve and I actually investigated one of those things that uh, you have on that website. And it was which, called which the, one did you go to, Ron? The Westford Night. <laughs> Oh, well, the Westford Night, of course, is near and dear to my heart because that's the site that got me really going onto all this stuff uh, back in around 1992. And um, I had heard, I came across the Westford Night in a book uh, called The Highland Clans, which was written in the late 60s. And a little little margin note, it said that there was the, uh, surprisingly enough, that the uh, Clan gun uh, coat of arms was etched on a rock in Westford, Mass. And I thought it was a typo. You know, they said in or around 1395, and it didn't make any sense. I thought maybe they meant 1895, because who would be in America in 1395? Uh, and, you know, besides Native Americans, naturally, right? I was here. So that, that the Westford night uh, kind of got me going in, in around 1992. I met up with Virginia Kimball, uh, one of the Westford Knight Committee members up in Westford, and she said, well, you know, Dark, this isn't an isolated thing, you know, and she said a few things. I forget what she said. Now, I want to say she said things like Dighton Rock and America's Stonehenge and Salem, New Hampshire, and things like that. And um, she said, you know, this is part of a kind of a bigger puzzle. And I said, huh, because, you know, 
they don't often teach this stuff in high school, really. It's kind of stuff that it's sort of anomalous or fall through the cracks kind of stuff, a lot of it. And, uh, and I'd even, I'd never, I gotta admit, I'd never heard of, um, of Dighton Rock. I think I'd seen brochures for America's Stonehenge because that's sort of a, you know, uh, more popularized. It it must be held before that, of course. Yes. And so, I mean, you know, when you uh, leave a restaurant and stuff, you sometimes see those racks where they have the brochures of what to see around Boston or around the area. And uh, I think I had seen brochures about visiting mystery of, you know, Mark Stonehenge. And uh, so that wasn't totally. But when she said that, that kind of led me onto a, hmm, so there's other, you know, the Newport Tower, there are these things around here in New England that uh, that seem to be, you know, a little mysterious. And uh and uh, have some questionable or questionable origins. So, so that led me into into getting into all these things, uh, you know, more and more. Especially around ninety two, ninety three, I really kind of first found out about it. I had I had gasoline in my veins about it. I was really excited, and uh, <laughs> so and still am, you know. But um, it led me to go, you know, let, let's take a trip down to Newport. Let's go see the Newport Tower. And uh, so so the Westford Night. She's the, the tough thing about the Westford Night is that it's. Uh, really faint and it's hard to see you know yeah i know i know yeah. uh, <laughs> it's very hard to see isn't it ron especially when it's covered with a, a wooden <laughs> case and uh crime scene tape wrapped around it oh you went when it was in, was now was the winter time when you went no <laughs> So they were doing some uh, public works alongside it and so they they covered it over with a big uh, big piece of wood Big one of us most famous adventures, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, oh, disappointing. You go there and, yes. No, it was, it was a great day out. Uh, when, when Ron, who knew where it was, couldn't find it for three hours. <laughs> well, you know, talk about disappointing. I think the, one, of the, one of the ones I had that was, was, I went one time to Walpole. I think it was Walpole, Mass, to see a chamber that someone had told me about. And didn't I go the day after they had sort of pulled it down? Oh, you're kidding me. They had, no, they had pulled it down uh, and taken it apart, and it was a giant pile of rubble in somebody's... Why did uh, they, they take it apart? Uh, I, I think it was like someone didn't want it on their property. Maybe the kids played in it or something. And uh, that's, that's intriguing. Yeah, it was a real... Now, the, the it, was a real it was a real problem. The Westford Night, uh, I've actually seen it in, in better shape. And, uh, in fact, Maureen and I did a, uh, a uh, podcast, and I think it's still on uh, Jeff Belanger's website, Ghost Village. And we went down there, and we went to the museum. We saw the, uh, the, the good drawings of it and the, the ones when they was originally found. And they, they did some really good drawings and photographs, and you can see it much clearer. And also we saw the boat stone, which is uh, also associated with the night as well. Yes, yes, the boat stone down at the library, which uh, they found, well, they found that, I believe. Uh, someone had that earlier in their barn or something. You yeah, know, prior it's to amazing. Before, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the style, uh, the way that, that um, the boat stone is carved, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, punch hole, dot-by-dot fashion, Mm-hmm. seems to match the style of the sword and stuff and stuff that's going on on the Westford Night Ledge. Exactly. seems to be that the, they were completed by a similar, you know, the same time, a similar person or something, you know. Um, very, very 
um, there's some commonalities there and where it shows a, a European looking vessel kind of interesting. And, um, yeah, you know, they think that one, one of the theories is that the, that the, that the, they were miles from, you know, the ship probably, and that the, the armorer's, uh, punch tool got dull. So when he was working on the Westford night and maybe he was getting going with the shield and the sword and stuff, especially the sword, you know, he'd done the sword and stuff and that maybe the tool became dull and, and so he couldn't really, or maybe there was maybe some trouble with the local uh, people who live there, you know, that they had to do a quickie version and couldn't really mm-hmm. do a full scale. Because that's the thinking is that with this person died that in Scotland the, or in Europe, they would, you know, you, you would have like a, if you're an important person, you'd have really like a, an effigy on your lid of your, of your uh, coffin, you know, it would look like you. I mean, they didn't have photography. They had painting, obviously, but they didn't have photography. So they would carve a, a life-size likeness of you on your on the lid of your coffin um some of these people that were important and stuff and i think you know the theory goes that this this right-hand man to prince henry sinclair uh died and that they couldn't uh they had to do they would do something for him they can't just you know they can't bring him back to the orkney islands or anything so they did a sort of a quick version of what they would have would have happened at home you know steve is that true is is there a lot of effigies on tombs in scotland yeah. Well, no, uh, all around the UK, um, in the medieval period, you would have a elaborate stone-carved uh, tomb lid depicting you in full armour, um, If you were, if, obviously if you were the knight or one of the landed gentry. So, uh, and the style of the Westford knight is, is quite similar. It's also quite different in some ways as well than um, some of the effigies that you see from that period. But it... it, it you know, that could just be down to the fact that the person who, who etched it or carved it is, is you know, it wasn't an artist, wasn't a stonemason. It was just, you know, one of the uh, one of the troops, one of the mercenaries, one of the, you know, the, the, the people that, who may have gone across. Um, That's true. And and maybe he didn't have time to do a full 3D, you know, like... Uh... The way the lids are, the coffin lids are there, and it's like a real. They are incredibly you know, elaborate. Carving. Yeah, they are incredibly yes. elaborate. Um, we've got several uh, quite close to me here, and. Um, sure, you got one in your office. <laughs> no, I haven't, but there's one about a mile away. Um, the masons that carved them were incredibly talented, incredibly skilled artists in stone. They were from Poland. They're not going to, you know, I, I would say, I think it's unlikely that, um, you know, a highly skilled mason would join an exploratory ch- uh, trip across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much more That's likely true. that it was a member of, you know, the the ship's crew or the militia um, who's just made a, a rough representation of the the figure it may be something entirely different what's what's interesting about the westford knight when you look at uh british effigies of that period and particularly related to the sinclair family the sinclair family have always trumpeted and shouted about their uh connections to the knights templars and the crusades and the westford not one of the characteristics of crusader knights when you when you visit uh, any of the crusader tombs uh, the characteristic was that the feet were always crossed uh, right over left as a symbol of Christ crucified on the cross. Um, and that was the indication that the the knight 
inside the tomb um, was a crusader. And the Westford Knight is very, very different. He doesn't have that cross, uh, those cross feet, which suggests strongly that he wasn't a crusader. Um, he wasn't involved, or he'd never been on crusade. Makes uh, sense. Mm-hmm. Because anybody who'd been on crusade would have wanted that fact announced uh, forever and, you know, for, for all people to know. And on their two effigies, they were always buried right foot crossed over left foot. Now, uh, interesting point. You also do a lot of investigating the stone chambers, and I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions at, at time about uh, stone chambers. I mean, when you find a stone chamber, I mean, how do you classify it, or, or how do you uh, determine what its purpose was? Well, I think the thing with the stone chambers that's so difficult, uh, that's a good question, because I I think that there's you know, when I've talked to other researchers, that you, you get people who will swear that something that you know you've been to is really old, and, you, and, and, and my gut feeling is it isn't. You know, and, and, and vice versa, maybe. Uh, the, the the problem is, I think, is that you know a lot of these people who who came over uh, in colonial times, um, they have the same general background of the people who we think may have been here in prehistoric times. And so people continue to do things in a similar way mm-hmm. through time. I mean, with slight modifications, you know, but so people building things that might be a root cellar that might have an opening at the top that might have a wide opening that might be an actual root cellar. Um, superficially, someone could see it by the side of the road and say, look at that thing as another one of those chambers and it. And it's not, an, and it's not necessarily ancient. I mean, I can't, I can't say really, you know, uh, I know they did get some carbon between some of the rocks and some of the stuff in America, Stonehenge and stuff, Jim Woodall and stuff back oh, in the, day, in the late fifties, early seventies. But, but, but the thing is that some of these chambers, they have entrances that make like a J shit, like, like to go in for a few feet and then bang a right. And they're very, very thin. Like there's one in Harvard mass that, you know, you couldn't bring a, a wheelbarrow. I mean, it goes in for about two feet or three feet, and it bangs a sharp, you know, right and goes in for many, many feet and then goes to the chamber itself and kind of makes like a big J. And uh, I can't picture bringing um, anything like a wheelbarrow or a, 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 any kind of a barrel, a barrel of things. I mean, it doesn't have much, you know, I was on my hands and knees crawling into this thing. So it seems to, you know, some of them, the, the old root cellar explanation doesn't seem to, and, uh, you know, um, but I, so it's kind of hard to answer that question. You know, you get a gut feeling about some of these things and, and, um, you know, some of them, like the one in that's mentioned in the one in Upton, that seems to be pretty good. Uh, it seems to be a pretty good candidate for being ancient. Um, that Upton chamber, you know, in his book there, Maver and Dix there in that book, Manitou, they seem to have found some alignments with, uh, with looking at the Pleiades. So, and there's some mounds on a nearby Pratt Hill there that seem to work and stuff with being inside the chamber and stuff. So, you know, when you, when you have that and they've done some tests, the town, I think of Upton did some tests where they had some money and they, they did some ground penetrating radar and they did some of that. I forget the exact term. It's like a luminescence type test where they can tell about grains of sand when they last saw the grains of dirt, when they last saw like, you know, light and, uh, and they seem to they seem to show that that chamber might be prehistoric. And I mean, it's a beehive chamber. It's not the right the scales wrong with stuff in Ireland and stuff, but the general uh, plan of the thing 
you know, seems to have affinity with stuff you'd find in the old world. And so I can't help but wonder about, like, say, the Upton Chamber. And yet you see these more these squarish chambers that have bigger slabs of stone and there's mortar in between them, like the one in Bridgewater. And you look at that thing and say, well, geez, that might be, in his, uh, you know, a, a post-colonial uh, construction. So I think in New England it runs the gamut from things that are possibly very, very, very old to things that are not – I mean, I'm not saying they're not old, but they're not old like what I'm looking for. You know, right. they're, they're a couple hundred years old. And so, when you get new, when you're new in this, I've I've had people call me and say, "Hey, I found a chamber and such and such," and I say, "Well, you know that one. Hmm, let's go look at it." And it doesn't. It to me, it looks like something that's newer. You know, and it's not quite. But people get excited about their finds and things like that. So, I think it's very tough. I think you develop an eye for it. If you're looking for arrowheads and stone tools, Native American things, you just kind of develop an eye for a little bit after a while. Right. For it. I know that a lot of our chambers are modeled after the ones in in the UK and in Europe. Uh, Steve, in fact, in Wales, they have quite a few chambers that are. Yeah, we do. And they're located close to water. A lot of them are too, which mm-hmm. uh, uh, is an intriguing intriguing fact as well. Is that re- a reference to New England located close to water? There, no. there, are, there are some I can think of. Right, right, the, the chamber that's in uh, Webster, Mass, is right next to a little stream that goes into uh, Lake Webster. Ah, right. No, I was, I was, I was uh, referring to what Ron said. Was he? Were you referring to the U.S. tomb uh, chambers or the U.K. chambers? Uh, the, are there some a lot of U.K. chambers that are close to water as well? Uh, well, we're not short of water, but no, um, that's actually not correct. The the most common uh, well, location the, the Welsh archaeologists they, they used them well there's uh, always water <laughs> yes they used it close meaning I guess you, when, you, when you say close you have to define but a lot of the, the Welsh farmers actually use some of these chambers uh, for their uh, the storage of grain and, and other things as, as well like root cellars and uh, uh, stove for the cattle well, that, that might be the case and that's that's because they're not generally near water the vast the vast majority according to archaeological campensis um, which was they, they produced dozens and dozens of maps and studies of particularly the Welsh chambers <laughs> is that they tend to be um, on a ridge line. So you will get them just below the top of a ridge line, and the idea was that um, there's a, that they they need to be seen. Uh, so when you're walking uh, or, or in the, the sort of low lying ground, these marked uh, the current thinking is that these marked ancestral boundaries that you put your ancestors in a in a respected place, and they marked the boundaries of your tribal land or your your area or your village. And so what you what you always tend to find is they're just below the ridge line of a hill, um, or or uh, and that's very much the case here. I mean, we've got one about a quarter of a mile away, um, and we have a very famous. Are we, talk, are we talking above ground chambers or, or oh, yeah, below yeah. ground chambers? Well, they're now above ground because the soil element has eroded away, uh, and what you're left with is the is these uh, big stone uh, edifices. Because the earth banking and the smaller stones have been, over years, robbed away and, er- and then the earth eroded away. Most of the stones, for example, for the two here, we've got Hanging Stone and plus, uh, Pendra Ifan. Um, what you're left with are the giant six, seven ton uh, stones. 
which were uh, the foundation blocks, if you like, of the, of the, of the chamber. And then around them there was um, smaller stones. Now, all of those smaller stones are all in dry stone walls. And all of the earth that was packed in between and then the, the pebble-sized and the, the, the gravel-sized stones have just washed out. And so what we're left with in the UK is predominantly, in fact, all of the, the major, um, what were started like as chambers, are now above-ground stone structures because it's gone. Interesting. Um, and that goes back to the you know the ones that have been dated to 2000 BC, 1500 BC, 3000 BC. There is this commonality of, of type, but they're mostly above ground now, and they were always a bump on the landscape so that you could see them. Mm-hmm. Now, I go back to Durek in, in the American chambers. Uh, it, the one thing we do have is, of course, Yankee ingenuity, and, and so many of the farmers. Uh, took some of these old sites and and multi-purpose them. They used them over again. A lot of that, uh, just because there is some mortar, for instance, in the chambers themselves, doesn't mean that they're necessarily new. It's just that they've been uh, ad- adapted or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, changed by by uh, locals for a particular uses. Sure, sure. I'm sure that's happened along the way because if you, you bought a, a, a property and you found something there, whether it's a stone row or it's a, a chamber or something, you might say, well, it's, it's kind of already there. Let's, I mean, that's probably what happened up at uh, America Stonehenge. You know, oh, that, was, that, that's I, a I mess believe. up. Have you been there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It, yeah. That, that, that I, is a, a total mess. <laughs> one interesting aspect. Yeah, I, love- I, I I was looking at uh, yeah. Derek's photographs of the um, Burlington and Bridgewater chambers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I find interesting is that the in America they haven't stolen them um, because here uh, they they were repurposed predominantly not for use as a chamber or or, or a space. Um, they were repurposed by stealing all of the usable stone from them and then using it in farm structures, dry stone walling, animal enclosures. There are several that have been decapitated so that the the capstones were removed and the the bowl or the remains of the chamber were then opened up to use as an animal pen. Um, So Mm -hmm. here in the -hmm. the UK, we tended to use it as a recycling resource. We did it here as well. But in America, yeah. Yeah, the, I agree with what Derek says about the, the Bridgewater one. That looks very, very new. Looks more like a bomb shelter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The um, I, I think the one in Bridgewater. What I think happened is, if you look at the side of the entranceway, you can see some very um, more recent-looking, very cut uh, mm. rectangular stones, and some of the stones that are like that are inside on the ground in the Bridgewater chamber. And so I think that they narrowed, they made the entranceway more narrow and with at one point than it was. I think if you look at the field stone on either side, you can see what it looked like. And I think they, I forget if it's the right or left and I have to think of the picture, but on one side you see these very dressed and cut stones, you know, these nice stones, these cut and dressed stones. And there are a few of them inside on the ground. So I think that at some point, like you were saying, Ron, about um, reworking something or changing it, altering it, that somebody decided to make the entrance entryway uh, smaller at one point because this, the field stone, they're, they're kind of rough and more primitive looking. And then these stones that are in the, you know, on one side are, are have a whole different look. And, um, 
and uh, you know, and I there is a chamber in Massachusetts that has no top. So I wonder, Steve, about what you were saying. I saw a chamber. It was let's say it's sort of the Abington Brockton line, and there's no there's no roof on this thing, but yet it has all the uh, the. the Someone put like a top over it or something and some branches and stuff, but there's no there are no stone slabs, and yet the sides of this thing in the entryway it looks like a stone chamber without a top. It's the only one I've ever seen like that. Um, so there is one at least that that kind of is similar to what you're talking about. What happens in England? That may, um, it may be the case because a lot of the original uh, settlers would have understood the practices that would be because these things were were here for two thousand years. Um, and it was it was during that period, um, the 16th, 17th, 18th century, when a great deal of these chambers in the UK were robbed out um, of the materials that were in them, um, and repurposed into walls and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The antiquarians come up, and that was what led to the antiquarians, because as people were stealing the building materials, they discovered bones and. and uh, clay pots and other bits and artifacts that were left with the original burials and the landowners started to collect these and you have uh, the, the start of antiquarianism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that actually happened uh, that actually happened also about robbing the stone up at up at America Stonehenge oh, uh, yes. Ron I mean that's yes. what I talked about they took something some crazy figure like I forget if it's like 40% they theorized that might have been carted away for Curbs and Lawrence and oh, the, house, the house of the uh, owner of the property and uh, quite a bit. Yeah, America Stonehenge is unfortunately uh, it's a cool site, but uh, it may not be the actual what it looked like in the day. I mean, some of the the standing stones. I mean, they're like four thousand years old. So you know. England is not the only one that has old stones. We do, too. Oh, because... no, no, no. I'm not saying we are. I'm, but I'm just saying that we probably got more known to be old. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Uh, mm. Interesting. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, even even the uh, – I mean, there's, there's so much we don't know about uh, America Stone Edge or Mystery Hill. I like the name Mystery Hill because it really is a mystery in a lot of stuff. I mean, we have the uh, – the uh, what do you call it? The uh, oh God, the sacrificial altar there. Uh, mm-hmm. We have we have the voice boxes that are that are uh, that run beneath the altar from the other chamber. I mean, there's so much that's there. If anybody hasn't gone there, it's worth the trip. I mean, it's, it's intriguing to look at. It's a nice place to go. The owners are it's privately owned. The owners are nice people, so it's. Uh, uh, yeah, Dennis and Dennis and Patty, Dennis and Patty Stone. Stone. Stone I, I love how their name is Stone. Yeah, yeah they, the owners of uh, of Mr. Hill are Dennis and Patty Stone. Yeah, it's great. And Robert Stone was uh, Dennis's dad. Uh, what is, what is, it is. It's, you're right. It's a good. It's got a great little museum there, a little bookstore, and they're very friendly people who who welcome visitors. And um, it, it's it's one of the bigger sites around in terms of just. You know, geophysical size. I oh, mean, yeah. it's you know, it's got a lot going on there, and evidently that's just a piece of the puzzle because they took a lot of it away. And of course, I think we were talking about when he said it's a mess. You know, the Goodwin, you know, William Goodwin there back in the day rearranged things and probably exactly moved some things. And Speaking about rearranging things, things, we have to rearrange things now because we have to take a break. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Passon and Ron Kolok, and our very special guest is Derek Gunn right here on Tojanet and Pararex Radio. We'll be right back.
Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. Ghost Chronicles International Part 2 Amazing Massachusetts with our special guest Derek Gunn and your hosts New England's very own Van Helsing and Blonde Bombshell who isn't on tonight I don't know why I even popped out then I got that wrong It's a surprise <laughs> <laughs> Anyways we were oh, talking that about... came from. How did Anne crop Am I... You know what it is It's Anne's new uh, line of standing stones um, These beach stone things she's been making Zen candles Yeah Yeah, anyway. the, um, yeah they're still like standing stones yeah, they do. Well, not standing stone, yeah. like stacks. Like a rock, like a rock stack, a rock stack. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, but anyways, American Stone that, Age. I don't, yeah, I don't think the ancients used uh, hot glue then. I don't know. You never know. Uh, and the American <laughs> Stone Hedge. I was I was lucky enough to do one of the first overnight investigation. Actually, the first overnight investigation uh, for ghosties uh, there years and years and years ago when I started the Ghost Project. But I also got to meet a, a gentleman by the name of Professor McLeod, who was a uh, Native American and uh, was a professor at the uh, University of Lowell, and he was doing quite a bit of uh, research there. And one night, uh, one day, I should say, he dragged me out to uh, the middle of the winter to this chamber, and we waited for the the sun to come up because the sun would send its rays onto the back of the chamber and create uh, supposedly uh, some type of a a map or something. And uh, I get up early in the morning to climb out in this freezing cold and go into this stupid wooden chamber, I mean stone chamber, (laughs) and uh, the sun came up and... uh, yeah, it was cloudy, so we saw nothing. So, oh, oh. total waste. 
<laughs> but I have a question for Derek. Can I, I have a question for Derek. Oh, um, sure. You sure? In, in, well, in the UK, um, most of our uh, above-ground monuments, those that are aligned, tend to be aligned to the midwinter sunset. Um, rather than this idea that they're aligned to the midsummer sunrise, this is a druidic idea that came about in the 19th century. In actual fact, they're, they're aligned to the midwinter solstice. Is there, is there a similarity of alignments uh, with these monuments in the U.S.? Yeah, well, there's, there's definitely, um, there are definitely a few. Um, I'm not sure about how many, but I can tell you there's a site, a site in Boxborough, um, that um, some of the guys in Nira know about, and they do group, uh, have done some group, uh, you know, Nira tours to it uh, on December 21st. And there's definitely a site in Boxborough that works like that. And um, and I believe there are a few others. Um, so we have them. We do have that for sure. Um, and uh, for the for the sun, you said for the sunrise, right? Uh, well, it's actually midwinter sunset. Uh, sunset. The alignment. And for, I mean, for, for the longest time, it's always been accepted, um, and it's it started by the Victorians, that monuments like Stonehenge uh, in the UK are midsummer sunrise aligned. Um, well, what archaeologists have looked at is, first of all, the alignment itself, and said that, well, actually, it's not, it's the other way around, which means it's midwinter sunset. But also importantly, in the in m- middle of summer, June 21st, the people would be incredibly busy. It's the middle of harvest time, and people are, mm-hmm. are hugely, hugely busy. Whereas in the middle of the winter, that's the time when they need to know that the year is past and the new year is beginning, and they, it's a quieter time, and they can celebrate and commemorate, um, you know, the changing of the years. So, well, that makes makes total sense. I mean, you'd have yeah. more more time on your hands, probably indoors yeah. more, obviously, and uh, and you'd also with with but the whole idea about these rituals and traditions is that that the idea of kind of ensuring that the the sun comes back, you know, that, the, that right. the, this is the Absolutely. shortest day, and you and now it's going to go the other way, and it's kind of the rebirth and renewal of 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 life, you know, on Earth. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's way, what you're you seeing know? with you know with the Egyptians, the and, and other ancient cultures. Um, it's the the dying of the sun at the midwinter uh, sunset, and then the rebirth, and then they, you know, but in midsummer, as as was pointed out by. There was a well-known farmer archaeologist um, who pointed out they were just too busy. They had too much mm-hmm. going on to start partying yeah. in, in, in the summer. Right. Yeah. Well, there's. I think. I think maybe one of the sunset. If I'm remembering correctly, it might be. Um, I'm not sure if it's summer or winter though. But out in Heath, Mass, at the you know the famous uh, the site out in uh, Burnt Hill, with all the standing stones out in Heath, Mass, in the, in the Berkshires, that has a. It's it's and, you know I have to look into it again. I'm forgetting if it's the, the winter or the summer, but there is some some sunset alignments mm-hmm. with a few standing stones, like two standing stones near you, and then there's a pile of white quartz in the intermediate distance, and then there's uh, another hill in the distance, and I heard that has a pile of white quartz on it too. I've never seen that, but I heard it does. But there's a, there's definitely a hill, the top of a hill in the distance, and then way off in the distance is a notch in like the mountains in the distance and it works that might be a summertime thing though i might have that wrong but it's definitely a sunset phenomenon um uh and that's you know that's 
kind of a well-known one when you get into the stuff the uh the burnt hill site it's very beautiful it's, it's private property it's, and you kind of have it's to... very interesting that you talk about white quartz because that's commonly found at the british sites uh, piles of yes. white yep. it's almost as if it was used as a dressing because the um, and the famous newgrange in in ireland um was literally covered in either white quartz or chalk um, because it would then you know obviously gleam in the in 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 the light right sure yeah. yeah, we we had actually a question on the thing. What he, uh, one of the Jamie from the chat room disagreed about the uh, the water and and stone chambers, and and I know quite a few chambers that are very close to water. In fact, in our new book coming out, More Ghost Chronicles, when we investigated Turtle Mound, that's right next to a pond, and there are several others like that as well. So, uh, yeah. it's not uncommon, but I want to go off stone chambers for a little bit and and sure. talk to you about something that I found really intriguing. I had never heard of it before, and I was looking at your strange artifacts. And this is the stone head that was found in Essex Max around 1810. Uh, mm. what, did you, what can you tell me about that? Well, I believe that was found around 1810 or 1811, and it was, as I understand it, it was found uh, during the digging for a foundation of a house. Um, and I hope where I'm getting my source that they got it. I, I love to have, you know, facts that are correct. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'm repeating something that this person that I read in a book that they got it right too. But, um, as I understand it, they were digging for a foundation, uh, for a house. So if you think about this, this is less, less than 200 years after the pilgrim landing. This is, you know, 190 years later. And, um, they, they found this, uh, larger than life-sized, uh, stone head. Uh, it has a hole in the bottom. And, um, and it, it, um, you know, people, it was a curious thing. It was actually displayed in a window, I think in a shop at one point. <laughs> and, uh, the Peabody Essex museum has it now. I think maybe if you ask nicely, you can see it. I'm not sure about that. I've never seen it. I've been mean to get up there and see that. I really want to. That's, that's, that's actually on my list. list of things to do. So uh, that'll work out great because I am going yeah, there. So. Let's go, let's go do it. <laughs> Cause I think you can, I think you can, you, it's pro probably possible to see if you're a researcher or something, they'll take it out for it. It's, I don't believe it's on display, but I think it is now, I something. I mean, it was on Chronicle. It was on a few shows. Yeah. I noticed that the, the photograph that you have was taken by Robert Ellis Cahill which is talk about going full circle. For me, he is one of the, uh, how I first got into uh, ghost investigating using infrared film. And that photograph, I believe, is infrared film. Uh, and Brian the Monk uh, was uh, one of the, the photographer for him and, and many of his uh, uh, books as yeah. well. Um, and he was I, also I, the I sheriff to... of Essex County as well. That's right. I have to. I have to correct you. I'm not sure. I, I correct you. I'm not sure if that. Now that definitely came out of his book. That picture I used. So I credit yeah. him. But I'm not. I'm not sure if he took it. Maybe I should phrase it a little differently on the on the website. Um, it came from his book, uh, New England's Ancient Mysteries, a 1993 book that he did. I'm not sure if he took the picture. I have a feeling maybe that picture might be Malcolm Pearson. Uh, I'm not sure though. Uh, that black I, and white picture. I, of the I, head. I wouldn't doubt if it wasn't because I know that that Bob was very much interested in infrared photography and and uh, a lot of his his books. If you look at his his, uh, I mean, it's Saltbox publishing his small books, but a lot well, of yeah. Them, Photo, a lot of the photographs are infrared, and uh, like I said, he he was the one that really got me into using infrared for uh, 
ghost photography back. Now, now how did you know that that picture was in, infrared? But when, by looking at it, or by looking at it, just looking at it, the uh, the uh, the detail uh, lack thereof. <laughs> and uh, okay, yeah, it's. It, it, I, I have you seen it, Steve? Uh, the photograph. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Does it look infrared to you? I would say it strongly. It strongly looks infrared, except. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a problem with the chair, but apart from not, that, not, yeah. Not reality, because you still have the the, the graininess of it and the uh, yeah the lack. Well, I, I I'd say that could well be infrared. Yeah, that's intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> some people some people have felt that that um, and maybe Steve can chime in on this part too for sure. Um, some people have felt that that stone head um, with the hole in the bottom and everything has. Um, possibly Celtic affinities, and there are stone heads in the old world that a lot of them are like bicephalac. They have a face like Janus. They have a face on one side and, and the face on the other, but they have that characteristic of having the having the, the hole in the bottom, like they were on a pole or something. I thought that was interesting detail that this one has a, a hole in the bottom like you could possibly put it on a pole or something because I believe the, the, the examples in Europe uh, have that too, you know? Or, or indeed, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you go look at the Romans' um, statuary, and they the, the skull, the, the head would often have a hole because that was how they mounted it on the rest. Yeah, of the that's statue. what I was thinking. I think more you of know, that than putting it on a it, pole. It, it, it's simply a peg. You know, it's a way of securing two stones to one another. Um, mm-hmm. what, what I'm looking at it, and you know, I, we we have a similar. Uh, mystery here, the Hexham heads um, from the northeast of England, these were discovered in the 60s, they're very much smaller this one, as you, uh, I think you said was larger than life size and I, I, I mean I'm no, absolutely no expert at all, but it just doesn't look old it looks like somebody's made you know, uh, there's been a perhaps a statue of a dignitary in the 17th century or 16th century being carved, and they just realized it wasn't very good and flung it away. The, the one from Essex? The one I'm looking at now, yeah, the Essex. The Essex I, okay. I, yeah. I kind of disagree with you on that. Well, you see, one of the things that um, I'm always mindful of um, is I think there the, 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 does tend to be a desire um, Certainly, when you when I read about American archaeology, to make an attribution to the old world, um, to this side of the Atlantic, perhaps more so than than always fits the bill. Um, simply because it's a stone head, it's unfortunately undateable because you know once out of context, right. and you can't date it by any mechanism uh, or means at all. I think the there is a mechanism you mentioned before this new unless it's organic matter, isn't it? Well, there is this new, there is this, uh, Derek mentioned before, there is this um, new um, electroluminescence or some, where they look yes. at the, 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 the mineral content and, and um, but that's, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to find out see, more about it. I'll you tell you this. Here, because... You know, you see them here in the UK, these, these, these things, and they're not old. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about, mm-hmm. you know, Late medieval into the Georgian period. Then yeah, yeah, but you got to remember our country is a lot younger than yours, so if uh, this could be a significant find, if it if it oh, is I, even I mean, hugely hugely significant, even if it you know dates to the very early colonial period. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. you know the the attribution to beyond that to some sort of pre um, right. Columbus era. 
I mean, it's yeah. accepted. It's now universally accepted that the Vikings got across there, um, yeah. Yeah. and into into North America. There are so many Viking monuments and and archaeological finds now coming out from New England. Yeah, there, there is there is a little known um, uh, stone head actually ties into what you're saying, Steve. There is in in around 19, I want to say. Uh, late 50s, early 60s, maybe somewhere between 57, I'd say, and 61, there was a, a, a youngish guy who found a stone, uh, some kind of carved head in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And it's pictured in a book called They All Discovered America uh, <laughs> by <laughs> Charles Boland. They All Discovered America, yeah. And this head, um, at least the, from the photograph he has in the book, and I don't know where this Joseph Notini is anymore. Uh, that, uh, I wonder if he's still alive and if he, you know, where, this, where the whereabouts of this head are. But he found it. He picked it up in some dirt. They'd moved some dirt. Or, um, I think it was found in Manomet, the Manomet section of Plymouth, but it, the, the dirt had, they found it had come from somewhere else, like maybe more toward the center of town. And, um, and when he cleaned off this thing, there was like a face on it, and you know, it's hard to tell from photographs, but from what I saw, it looked almost like that Nordic-style art where you see those, those you look in the wooden churches and things, uh -huh, uh -huh. where they have that sort of very distinctive kind of nose and the the eyes and stuff, and the and some of like the profile, uh -huh. kind of flattish and stuff. And uh, this stone head sort of looks like some of the stuff that usually see carved more in wood, you know, in 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 a, in a uh, Scandinavian type um, church or something like that. And uh, I'd love to see where that went. And there also were about five or six stone heads found out um, in the center of the state. And uh, Joe Sinnott, the state archaeologist, was in the paper before he died. He was in a couple articles. I'm guessing around, I don't know, 2002 or something like that. But there were these series of sort of bowling ball-sized stone heads that um, – People out uh, towards, um, you know, towards the Worcester area were finding these heads, uh, and, and years and years apart. Um, and someone, and you know, there was an article where he had said that there were two of them, and then someone came forward and said, "Geez, I've got one in my barn too," and you know, that was found by my father or something like that. You know, so there was a, a collection. I think the Mass Archaeology Society um, did an article in one of their bulletins or something about the five or six of them, but um, they. Um, they seem to, some people tie them in with the Iroquois, you know, um, the false, um, the, um, like that, those, those sort of wooden carved masks with the, the smiling faces, but right. they're very strange. The, uh, these stone heads, I, the only thing I ever saw that really reminded me of them was there is a carving in, uh, behind Roslyn chapel on uh, bedrock, you know, in the Roslyn I, Glen, I, I, I think it's called. I know the one, I know the one you mean. You know that face that's I know, I, behind I the chapel? I do know it because I've spent, I, I, we actually stayed for uh, t t uh, a couple of weeks twice at Roslyn Castle. I, I do know exactly so you, the so carving you, you, you know the carving, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. the, these stone little bowling ball or basketball sized stone heads that have been found in Massachusetts, that kind of lopsided grin, um, mm -hmm. The closest thing I ever saw to it in a book was was uh, interestingly enough that that face that's carved in the in the living rock there, um, and there's the flavor of it. It was kind of hmm, it was right. kind of because they can't Jeez. seem to nobody seems to be able to pinpoint uh, any kind of um, you know ethnological research and stuff like what what, what what culture produced these stone heads? You know, they no, were we have the same problem here. Indians. We had this uh, similar problem with, as I said, the Hexham heads, uh, which turned well, up in the If you stopped killing all your people off there, you wouldn't have that 
we started turning up, and then there was there was sort of um, a ghost story attached to them. But it, it later transpired that they were actually very very new, and it was it was a guy playing tricks. Um, but moving away from the heads for a minute, I've just scrolled up and down the page a little bit on this strange artifacts, and I'm looking here at a mm-hmm. bronze coin from Constantinople. Um, you know, a sort of fourth century coin. Um, because yes. I used to have one, very, almost the, you know, a twin of this one from um, my metal detecting archaeology sort of coin collecting days. And it, and then you scroll up a couple above it, and there is a medieval shield. Um, these small, I mean, I don't know how big it is in reality. It looks to be about 10, 12 inches in diameter, which is what, uh, uh, I forget the exact word for them, but they, they were carried on the, uh, the left hand with the dagger um, mm-hmm. by, by men-at-arms. The, 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 shield, the shield you're looking at, is, is that from, the, is it the Marshfield one? It's a black and white picture? Uh, yeah, the one pulled up by lobstermen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, if that, those if two things about, are so. Yeah. Then it, how? How? What's the diameter of that? Well, I'm not sure about that. That's a that's a very big enigma in my research. And those two things you mentioned are both near and dear to me in different ways. They're both from my hometown of Marshfield, Massachusetts. And um, the first the first thing you mentioned, I don't know an awful lot about it. The Byzantine coin, except this, my cousin found it. As a child, my cousin, I give her a shout really? out, Kim Peschel. Kim Peschel Murphy, my cousin, found that. Uh, and um, That's cool. I well, didn't that know that all along. She, <laughs> oh, yeah, she definitely, I mean, whether it's uh, some kind of like a coin collector's loss or if it's ancient, you know, it was deposited there in ancient times, it's hard to know. But she found that, and, of course, it, what's funny about it is she didn't tell me this as a kid, you know, and we hung out as kids. Uh, my mother was very close <laughs> to her mother. And we went and did things together down the Cape and went on little trips and things. But as an adult, and, and fairly recently, really, she said, well, because she saw what I was doing with my researchers and stuff, she said, well, there's that weird coin I found. And so she sent me a picture of it. And it's a Byzantine coin, all right, and it's from my hometown, her home, her hometown, too. And um, she still has it. And um, I don't know a lot of details except that we have a lot of beaches in Marshfield. And she said, well, it probably either came from Green Harbor or Brant Rock. These are two beaches, you know, two sections of town. Uh-huh. Um, so it's either from Brant Rock Beach or Green um, Harbor. And the interesting thing is that shield you're mentioning, that came off of, off of Brant Rock. So right. one of the beaches she mentioned about the Byzantine coin, well, the shield for sure was found uh, in 1954 uh, off the coast of Marshfield in the Brant Rock section by a lobsterman. And um, and a, a funny little personal thing about that is that uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a cop in town, a police officer in Marshfield, but his other job was he was a lobsterman, and he started in 1953. And so when I got into all this, he was still alive, and I said, to, I said, Papa, I said, did you ever hear about, and I showed him a picture, you know, I said, did you ever hear about the shield that some lobsterman pulled up? Well, when I was a kid and a teenager and stuff in the 70s and stuff my grandfather knew everybody in town everybody knew him officer gun he's kind of hard to miss and uh he was a, a, a well-known you know police officer and lobsterman um in 54 he was a new guy in town you know he had just started lobstering the year before i think they just moved from boston down to marshville maybe a year or two before that so he wasn't as connected as he was when i was a, a kid growing up and when he knew everybody never knew him um so he didn't know anything about it 
Um, but that shield, unfortunately, a, a cool piece of evidence, and I'm not sure how big it is. It's hard to tell from the pictures. I thought it was a little larger myself. I would have guessed it was about 18 inches across or, or, or two feet or something like that. But that's a guess. Um, but Edward Rose Snow, who was a historian and author, um, oh, and he also a Marshfield, uh, Marshfield resident as well, he took that picture of the of the shield and the shield's whereabouts are now unknown naturally and what a good piece of physical evidence and yeah. i gotta tell you guys when talk about bob cahill for a second when he wrote that book america america you know new england's ancient mysteries mm-hmm. i was up at america's stonehenge in 1993 i bought the copy of the book it had just come out it was pretty new and i was enthralled with it and on the ride home my 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 ex-wife was driving my wife at the time and she was driving and when i ever opened up to that page and it said you know uh the only man-made object that might conceivably have some connection to this uh sinclair thing uh or the, or the carving let's say the westford knight is the is the metallic shield pulled up off the depths of brant rock well i mean i got goose pimples up and down my spine i gotta yeah, tell you, you, know, you know that's my found by a lobsterman yeah, I could huh? agree with you because if that's slightly smaller, so ten inches and smaller across, in the yeah. in that in that period of um, so the fourteenth century, thirteenth century, it was it was quite common. You do see many many etchings and drawings from that period where the knight would carry a large. His main sword is two foot six to three foot long sword in his right hand. In the left hand, he would carry um, a smaller dagger. But commonly, um, also uh, to protect the dagger hand and to protect the shield hand, and it was itself used as a weapon, was this smaller, um, I think it was called an arming shield or an armette. Yeah. Um, was this mm-hmm. smaller shield that it was a, it was a, a cross between a, a defensive weapon and a battering weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that looks, you know, exactly right. It, it, exactly like one. You know, small, round, slightly domed. And, you know, the wow. first thing I, you know, when I saw it, if it's not a platter, um, you know, but they were platter-sized, um, is, uh, yeah. I mean, it's completely, out, you know, the, uh, what, seven, eight hundred, possibly more years between that and the coin. Um, mm. But, yeah. I mean... Well, could that, uh, coin, could that coin be from the 1200s, maybe? No, 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 much earlier. Uh, you're talking with that coin, that's Christ on that coin. Um, you can see the um, his halo uh, around his head, and that would be yep. for 5th century. So, now okay. what's, inter- what's interesting is that the Vikings were, um, and certainly if you go to Viking coin hoards that have been located in the UK, although they, they tend to be mostly precious metals, uh, there are quite a lot of Byzantine coins from the 8th and 9th century, which were very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And you know something? You know, when you look at the up that same strange artifacts uh, gallery there, there's uh, some um, some coins with Arabic or something on them. Um, uh-huh. And they, well, the, look, Vi- they look the medieval. The were notorious for, they, they plunged, they, you know, they went right across the Mediterranean, uh, the Middle East. Right. Russia, and... A lot of the uh, Viking coin hoards that are found in the UK and in Europe contain a large number of Byzantine um, sort of coins and Byzantine precious metals in them. And yep. you know, if you're looking for a Viking coin hoard, you know, finding Byzantine coins in amongst them, Byzantine artifacts from that sort of seventh, eighth, ninth century, is is absolutely you know, one of the characteristics. And that coin is bang on. Well, unfortunately, yeah. that was the uh, doorbell, which means pizza from the dead is here, and we've got to wrap up the show. Uh, you're listening to Ghost Trotter Talk.
yeah, Ghost Chronics, Ghost Chronicles, International, right here on Tojinet and Pararex. And our special guest today has been Derek Gunn, who will be joining us at SpiritQuest this year and doing In Search of what, Derek? It's going to be the same thing we're talking about today. It's going to be uh, ancient American enigmas, you know, mysteries, uh, standing stones, perched rocks, inscriptions, awesome. chambers, all I this will, fun I, stuff. I, and I'm going to be spending a lot of time with Derek. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, it, hey guys, can... thank you so much for having me. It's been no, great. Thank you. And, uh, anything, thank you so much. Check out his website, Amazing Massachusetts. Uh, it's on. It's linked on ours as well. And anything else you want to add, Derek? Well, I just want to say uh, real quick, thanks again. And uh, just to just to finish off a thought about Marshfield there, if you go down to the About Derek Gunn part with a little bio about me, you'll see me pictured next to a five-foot standing stone. Mm-hmm. And that I found in 1995, in, in, again, in Marshfield. So you have, the, you have this possible shipwreck or, you know, the shield. You've got the Byzantine coin. And you've got a five-foot standing stone all in about a few miles apart from each other. So and something going on down there something in my home. Was going, something was definitely going on. Uh it could yeah. be a coincidence. Yeah. yeah. Or a synchronous, yeah. Music <laughs> and, so. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you very Have much great... for joining us. And, we'll uh... see you at Spirit Quest, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Take look care. forward to it. Yep. Well, this is another care. show. Thank you. Down... Yep, bye. This is another show down the tubes here, uh, Parsons. Yeah, we got away with that one. Good guest. Yeah. Right, Fascinating. What? Oh, absolutely fascinating because, you know, one of my, one of my passions is... It... It's archaeology and history. It has to be. It runs hand in hand with the paranormal. Yeah. So speaking of hand in hand, we've got to go. So grab my hand and let's walk out into the sunset. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. I'm not responding. I know. I can't even. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. (laughs) Good night. Goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.